Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Listeners, and welcome to October's episode of FNS Unplugged. You're hearing a different voice today. I'm Molly Cornfield. I'm usually behind the scenes on the editing side of things, and I'm filling in for Pietro Bordoletto. And I'm joined by our co hosts, Daylon James from FNS Science and Blake Evans from FNS Reviews. How is everyone doing today? Doing better than they are in the uh, Bordoletto house. I don't know, there's a nanny situation or some. I think the kids are just, you know, running wild. I, I think our illustrious co-host might be at his wits end for the first time in his adult life. <laughs> Doing great. Thank you. We're very excited to have you joining us today, Molly. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So despite it being October, I didn't come up with a Halloween theme for the papers today, but they all somehow relate to embryo transfer and endometrial receptivity. And it could get a little bit spooky depending on how you feel about endometrial receptivity assays. So I think we should get started. Blake, could you start us off and tell us about the paper you chose from FNS Reviews this month? Happy to. Thank you, Molly. So the title of the paper I'm going to be discussing is the impact of an endometrial receptivity array on personalizing embryo transfer for patients with infertility, a meta-analysis. And this is by first author Tran et al. out of Vietnam. So a lot to unpack here, but I'm going to try and condense it. There's a lot regarding this study and a lot of contention, if you will, regarding this. So let's get into it. So the window of embryo implantation is typically around menstrual cycle day 19 through 20 and lasts four to five days. The premise of why one would test using an ERA is presuming that many infertile women may have a quote unquote displaced window of implantation. So the ERA test is done in a mock cycle in which the patient is given the precise medication regimen that she would receive in a typical frozen embryo transfer cycle, but instead of an embryo transfer, a biopsy is done. And so this ERA biopsy tests 238 genes within the endometrium results as either receptive or non-receptive, and then the duration of progesterone exposure is adjusted accordingly. Makes sense, right? So the authors state that there have been studies demonstrating the effectiveness of ERA. However, this still is an area of contention. So many studies show inconsistencies with what the definition of a successful implantation is. For example, some studies would show that the ongoing pregnancy rate was calculated as the number of ongoing pregnancies divided by total successful clinical pregnancies instead of the number of embryo transfer cycles being the denominator or the number of deliveries divided by successful ongoing pregnancies. And so this obviously can lead to some confusion when you're interpreting these results in these studies. And so in this meta-analysis, they converted the denominator to the total number of embryo transfer cycles, which in my opinion is the correct denominator to use. So looking at the methods, this was a meta-analysis of studies looking at implantation rate, clinical pregnancy rate, ongoing pregnancy rate, miscarriage rate, and live birth rate. Ultimately, they included 17 studies, four of which were randomized controlled trials, and 13 were cohort studies. There are several forest plots that I encourage our listeners to go back and look at, but what I'm going to do is take all of the confusing stats and summarize it for you all here. So ultimately, they found that a personalized embryo transfer on the basis of ERA was not found to optimize the gestational outcomes, including the implantation rate, clinical pregnancy rate, 
ongoing pregnancy rate and miscarriage rate. Of important note, the quality assessment of these RCTs included did have a high risk of bias. And also of important note, the studies did not provide sufficient discussion for interpreting their findings. And so the authors also proceeded to discuss that a personalized transfer among patients with a history of recurrent implantation failure did not enhance the live birth rate. Conversely, they did a, a further subgroup analysis that indicated that patients undergoing a personalized embryo transfer using ERA in the first IVF cycle had a, quote, markedly increased life birth rate, which we'll get into that here in a little bit. However, the subgroup analysis was based on only two smaller RCTs, whereas the larger subgroup analysis included seven cohort studies, and this did not show a difference in the first IVF cycle. Clear as mud, right? Okay, so in conclusion, the authors state that the endometrial receptivity assay shows no significant improvement in IVF outcomes except in live birth rate for patients undergoing their first IVF cycle. Again, more on that here in just a minute. So assessing the ERA is time-consuming and costly, in which a patient may have to spend up to about $1,800 as reported by the authors. And not to mention also delay having an embryo transfer since the transfer of the embryo itself obviously cannot be done the same cycle as the ERA test. So the authors also proceed to discuss that this should be an open discussion between doctors and patients so that they can make an informed decision on moving forward. And also there's a lack of evidence that limits the routine use of this test in the general population. So I've got a few comments on this, and I wanted to talk about a couple of studies of which are not included in this meta-analysis and are extremely important to discuss. One of which I saw coincidentally just was posted on our fertility and sterility social media accounts literally right before we started this podcast. So listeners, check that out if you have not already. But so this meta-analysis that we've been discussing looked at studies from 2015 to 2020. And so there's a few pretty important studies that happened after that search criteria that I want to talk about. So first, Reisenberg et al. published a prospective cohort study in FNS in 2021, and they found that in patients undergoing their first frozen blast transfer using a single euploid embryo, live birth rate did not differ between standard timing, frozen embryo transfer cycles, and adjusting for progesterone exposure using ERA testing. So this actually was cited by the authors in the Tran et al. meta-analysis, but they didn't really elaborate as to why there's contradicting findings from their conclusions. They basically just said, indeed, they found this and then didn't really say anything else. So I found that kind of interesting. So then the other uh, couple of studies I wanted to talk about are very important to note regarding ERA. And these were published after this meta-analysis search criteria was looked at. One of which was done by Doyle et al. out of Shady Grove Fertility, and also she was an NIH fellow uh, with me at the time that she started doing this as part of her thesis. And so ultimately looked at patients with and without ERA before a euploid single frozen embryo transfer. There was 370 ERA timed cycles, and then 2,284 standard protocol FET cycles were analyzed. So after they adjusted for the number of previously failed embryo transfers, there was no difference in the proportion of receptive and non-receptive ERA results, and also patients categorized as receptive versus non-receptive, and those without ERA testing results had comparable success rates, so overall similar outcomes. And then lastly, I just wanted to mention 
one that was very recently published by, uh, pardon if I mispronounce this, but it wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't mispronounce a name, but Casalino et al. out of Italy. And this was actually recently published in FNS this month. And this was the one I'm referring to that was just posted on our social media accounts. And this was also discussed on the FNS on air podcast recently. So they found that in patients with a single previously failed transfer, a personalized embryo transfer using ERA showed that implantation pregnancy rates, clinical pregnancy rates were actually lower than without the ERA. And one thing that's extremely important to point out that Eve pointed out in the FNS podcast, but two of the authors on this paper were actually inventors of the ERA. And so the authors disclosed this at the top of the paper, and I certainly think that they should be commended for their honesty on the, the evidence that they're showing in this paper. So that's mainly what I have to say about this paper. Now, I will admit I have offered this test to a very select group of patients after explaining to them the limitations and regulation or lack thereof of this test. It's not an FDA approved test because sometimes we just don't really know what else to offer these patients with recurrent failed cycles and it's frustrating. And certainly patient autonomy is of great importance, but as more and more data emerge, we may need to consider throwing this test out just as we pretty much did with the endometrial scratch test, which you guys know I'm, I'm not a fan of. So, and lastly, I, I love a good pun. You guys know that, but I'd like to give a shout out to doctors, Marika Raff, Emily Jacobs, and Bradley Van Voris out of University of Iowa. And as they eloquently phrased in the reflections piece of the Casalino et al. study in this month's FNS, they say, is it the end of an era? And so I, I really like that title and encourage everyone to go back and read that, but they make some very good points. So I'll get off my soapbox, but Molly and, and Daylon, I don't know if you have any thoughts about this test or what do you guys think? Well, wow. Blake, that's some grave news you're bringing. The ERA is dead, feels like, but um, I don't Happy know. Happy Halloween. <laughs> spooky, spooky news. But uh, the truth is, I mean, I think a lot of people have been skeptical. And the beauty of this kind of live experiment, I guess, if you want to call it, uh, maybe a little haphazard that we're doing a live experiment, but it's not that invasive. And I don't think there's been that much cost to it in terms of patient care. But the beauty of it is that, you know, the numbers tell the story. And I think now all these studies are converging on this harsh truth that the, the ERA is dead. End of an era. But um, I, I would like to think, and, and I'm maybe a little disappointed in this, maybe guide our live experimentation in the future, is that there really is a, a resource here. All these ERAs that we have, thousands of these uh, little transcriptomic analyses that we have are really fertile ground for analysis. We have all the outcomes. It'd be great if we could integrate that data maybe recursively with some kind of AI or even just uh, you know garden variety transcriptomic analysis with now a uh, greater appreciation uh, or maybe add to the genes that we would uh, test in there. I don't know. I, I would like to think that the, it's the end of an era only provisionally. Um, and then maybe the concept is still alive and we just need uh, better methods and maybe a, a better tool. Uh, but I don't know, Molly, what's your take? I agree. We're just not there yet, but I think there's probably still something there. And then I think this is really important for our clinical practice, because as you guys have stated on this podcast before, it's easy to add things in fertility care. It's really hard to take things away. And when I'm looking at my patient who's done three cycles for one euploid embryo, it's really tempting to throw the kitchen sink at, at this embryo transfer. Um, but I think if we really can't find utility, maybe even finding worse outcomes, then of course it makes sense to lay that to rest. 
Yeah, very good points. And I, I certainly agree with the both of you all. I do agree. I think there's something there. I think more data is needed. And, you know, there's the old adage with the meta-analysis, the study is only as good as the studies you put into it. And for those studies I mentioned at the very end that were not in the meta-analysis, I think that those should be critically evaluated and looked at when we're considering data on ERA. All right. Well, that's a, a nice segue. I can just... Uh take the horn there and keeping with the theme of the uterine environment as a factor i have a study from hugh taylor's lab at yale looking at pathological endometrium also known as endometriosis or, or the presence of endometrial tissue in the extra uterine environment and when i define it like that i guess my first question is how does the the uterine tissue outside of the uterus have a negative impact on the reproductive process um well the, the role of endometriosis and in, infertility in remains pretty controversial, but there's a, a few ways that it might go. The inflammatory environment could undermine implantation or at least impair endometrial receptivity, or endometriomas can be on the surface of ovaries, potentially affecting follicle development and or ovulation. Common denominator of all of these is uh, inflammation, right? Uh, which is fundamentally governed not by uterine epithelial and stromal cells or the elements of the endometrium, but by hematopoietic immune inflammatory cells that arise originally from the bone marrow. Indeed, normal physiological regeneration of the endometrium uh, with normal menstrual cycling is facilitated by these bone marrow-derived hematopoietic cells. And here's the hook. Uh, in the context of endometriosis, at least in mice, uh, the contribution of the bone marrow-derived cells to the uterus is reduced. And the idea there is that these ectopic endometriomas are recruiting cells uh, from the bone marrow when they should be going to the uterus. So they're providing these this ectopic site uh, that's distracting, uh, so to speak, those hematopoietic cells are diverting them away from the uterus. So based on this idea, Hugh Taylor's group, led by first author Anna Carolina Rosa y Silva, hypothesized that redirecting those bone marrow-derived cells back to the uterus might mitigate the deleterious effect of endometriosis on endometrial receptivity. To do this, they chose a classic chemoattractant that plays a critical role in the tissue-specific homing of both primordial germ cells in development and hematopoietic stem progenitor cells both in development and in adult homeostasis, and that is CXCL12, also known as stromal-derived factor one or SDF1. So this is a classic homing factor, and in an elaborate experimental design involving first bone marrow transplant, and that's to track the contribution of these bone marrow-derived cells. So they took labeled cells from one mouse and, and transferred them to another. Second, uh, transplant of uterine tissue to the peritoneum, uh, of a, another mouse to model endometriosis. And finally, uh, local uterine administration of CXCL12. Uh, and using those methods, they made a pretty strong case, I would argue. They demonstrated increased pregnancy rate after treatment with CXCL12 uh, and a corresponding increase in the recruitment of bone marrow-derived cells to those uteri. They even added some data related to progesterone integrin that I'm not going to mention uh, in order to like spice up the mechanistic angle there. But all in all, I, I would say a well-designed study with a clear and unequivocal endpoint, whether or not this is translatable to human remains a question. I mean, the big 
flashy result there with the increased pregnancy rate. It was kind of all or nothing with these mice. You know, mice have litters, and this is either pregnant or not. So the degree to which it affects endometrial receptivity on the embryo scale perhaps uh, remains to be seen. But I think more broad view, I think this really draws attention to the role uh, of circulating hematopoietic cells and immune inflammatory cells in uterine receptivity. And it opens up a whole rabbit hole that I wouldn't want to go down um, of inquiry into the intersection of immune dysfunction and infertility, which is a whole field unto itself. Uh, I, I put it to you guys, is the impact of bone marrow derived cells and or immunomodulation, does that ever enter your mind when you're working up a patient with repeated implantation failure? And second question, could you envision a kind of a cell base or hematopoietic cell recruitment therapy ever being applied toward fertility in your practice in the future, clearly? I mean, you know, we have talked in the past when we had uh, Genevieve Jeunesse talk to us about the immune therapy for recurrent implantation failure. I, I mean, I, I definitely always keep that in the back of my mind ever since we've talked with her and we have that eloquent table that's I know is part of your repertoire now in your soon to be clinical office one day. Conceptually, this is such an interesting idea. Endometriosis is such a, a difficult disease to treat. And I think that this is, is certainly something that deserves further investigating, but inducing endometriosis to what degree does that relate to our patient with stage one versus stage two or three or four endometriosis in the human? There's certainly something to look into it with this, but um, I don't know what the next steps would be. This is a really interesting design to answer a complicated question. And it's also interesting that they use natural conceptions to investigate these questions rather than embryo transfers. So the authors were really focused on endometrial receptivity and progesterone receptors in the endometrium in their model. But I wonder if they were also, with their intervention, treating a tubal component like we might see in humans with endometriosis. And that could also be contributing to the improved pregnancy rate they saw. And I also think, too, when we're considering this topic of fresh transfer versus frozen transfer, which I know, Molly, you're going to get into that to some degree in just a moment. But in a patient with endometriosis undergoing a fresh transfer, I feel like this would be much more of a concern with all these inflammatory markers and as opposed to a frozen transfer in which we know, I mean, off the top of my head, I'm thinking of a Lauren Bishop study in which she found that in patients with frozen embryo transfers in comparison to patients with tubal factor or male factor infertility, those are their sole reasons for doing IVF. There is no difference in pregnancy rates for compared to patients with endo. And so when we're doing these frozen cycles and we're suppressing a lot of these inflammatory markers uh, in comparison to someone with a, a fresh transfer, you know, are these the patients we really need to be considering? And frozen transfers are becoming really common across the country. And is this something we need to really be considering of in patients with endometriosis? Do we need to have concern for this? Yeah, those are good points. I think that that this this study really underscores the gap between research in, in mice and in patients. I mean, mice are my patients, as you, as you mentioned there, Blake. But I recognize that uh, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of evidence that remains to be established in uh, the human patient population. And I think that's a prerequisite to moving forward on any kind of immunomodulatory approaches. But I do think it's fertile ground. And I'm amazed even to see that they can model endometriosis in a mouse and actually affect fertility. So for me, that was a big takeaway is that these tools exist. I mean, I know a lot of clinicians are looking first to, to the patient um, as the greatest uh, resource, 
but uh, to know that there are tools out there and a well-controlled experimental model for, for endometriosis and then addressing it as well. And also just the idea and concept that you can get this trafficking from these immune or hematopoietic compartments into the uterus, and that's affected by disease. I think there's just a lot there. So I get really excited for my future mouse patients. And who knows when I hang a shingle, some terrible clinic where no one goes, uh, maybe I'll consider an immunomodulatory approach. But that's in the distant future, right, guys? For now, let's stick to uh, just reporting on the news. Molly, I think you're next. Great. Dalon's still working on his clinical fellowship. So I chose a paper from FNS Reports, and the paper is entitled Factors Associated with Large for Gestational Age Infants Born After Frozen Embryo Transfer Cycles by first author Anne Rashong and senior author Bruce Pierre. In this paper, they open with the background that frozen embryo transfers have become increasingly common over the past 10 to 15 years as the technology has improved, with the primary benefit of reducing risks of OHSS, especially in our PCOS patient population. And I would add the ability to do pre-implantation genetic testing on embryos if they're frozen. However, many studies have suggested that frozen embryo transfers are associated with large for gestational age infants and fresh transfers with small for gestational age infants. However, this relationship still remains to be better defined. The authors of this paper designed a retrospective cohort study to describe large for gestational age or LGA rates among embryo transfer cycles and specifically to look at the characteristics of patients that could increase their risk for having an LGA infant. So what did they find? They found, as we'd expect, an increase in frozen over fresh embryo transfers over time from 20% of transfers in 2004 being frozen up to 74% of transfers in 2018, which is consistent with the trends that we would expect. The transfers that resulted in LGA infants, however, declined both in fresh and frozen transfers in this study, although the percentage persisted as higher in frozen transfers. They compared cycles resulting in LGA versus non-LGA infants to then determine if cycle or patient characteristics differed between groups. The cycles resulting in a birth of an LGA infant were more likely to include non-Hispanic white patients than non-Hispanic Black, non-Hispanic Asian, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander patients. Other risk factors they found included BMI over 25, gravity, and parity. And they found more LGA infants with male factor and PCOS. PGT was also associated with LGA cycles. This is just a brief overview of their study, so I would definitely check out the entire paper as well. I think a big takeaway of this study is that LGA rates overall actually were decreasing as a proportion of IVF births over this time period, although they still were persisting as higher after frozen embryo transfers. Well, why would this be? Just hypothesizing here, it could be changes in our obstetric practices overall with improved treatment of associated conditions with LGA, like gestational diabetes. Or maybe we're improving access to IVF services that include a broader patient population, including more non-white populations that have lower rates of LGA in general. So what do you guys think? Why do you think we're seeing more LGA infants with frozen rather than fresh embryo transfer cycles? But at the same time, the proportion of IVF cycles resulting in LGA infants is overall declining. Molly, I think you've got some great points there. I've always found it so interesting to just think, why would the vitrification process 
result in LGA babies. You know, there, there's been quite a bit of data in the past several years looking at this, and I we still don't know really. But I do agree. I think maybe it does have to do in part with our patient population, um, a broader access to care, as you'd mentioned, and getting better treatments for certain things like gestational diabetes throughout pregnancy. Um, well hopefully in part be reducing the prevalence of LGA. So I think the jury is still out in terms of why this occurs. We know that it's there. I think ultimately we're not going to, as clinicians say, you should not do a frozen embryo transfer cycle because your baby might be a little bit larger and you might have a risk of C-section. But I do still think that it's something important that we need to counsel our patients regarding going into these different types of treatment cycles. Yeah, just to, to your last point and Molly circling back to what you uh, said in your comment earlier, uh, it's hard to take away, right? It's easy to add, it's hard to take away. And when you look at the number there, FETs, 20 to 74% of transfers, like, I don't know, that seems irreversible to me. So this is a, a bit of a comfort, I would say, considering that there've been all these uh, additional reports that have suggested a link between frozen and LGA. I think this to me is, is a bit comforting but if it weren't, I, I mean, just being cynical, let's say Karen said there's a definitive link, the, the risk of blah, blah, blah. I mean, do you put the genie back in the bottle? You think that the FETs are, that that trend is reversible or it's just a juggernaut that you really can't turn? I think there's so many benefits uh, to frozen embryo transfers, um, most of which I think is the ability to do PGT, reducing OHSS risk, that it's not going anywhere, but I do think if we hypothesize that there's some sort of epigenetic component, that extended culture conditions, that the vitrification process is leading to uh, LGA infants, then there may be further modifications we could look at to improve culture conditions. And that's another hypothesis. Why were these rates of LGA overall actually improving over the past 15 years? Well, it might be changes in our lab. It might be lab techniques, which the authors did hypothesize as well. Yeah, I agree. I think that frozen transfers are not going anywhere. And in fact, are probably going to be more of commonplace and, and standard of care in the future. But I think this also gives us a good opportunity to investigate further as to why we're seeing these differences over time. Yeah, I think the authors also really nicely summarized the strengths of having this enormous data set. They actually had 2 million embryo transfer cycles to work with and worked with um, over 100,000 for their actual study. But then there's also these limitations of missing data when you're looking at such big numbers of population data. So that's it for our episode this month. As always, please check out each of these articles and the other articles published this month in all of the FNS sister journals. Thank you so much for listening. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air. Brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect the fertility and sterility family of journals or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.